being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong oh shoot i did want to ask you to so i i you know i just hit record so it's wheelie right yeah that's right okay because i was looking through because I and I listened to your book on audiobook, right? And it was uh they said wheelie and so I was pretty sure, but I wanted to make sure. It's funny because with all of the AI stuff, there have been like uh summaries of monarch coming up that have been written by AI. And I also oh, really? got my first how to pronounce my name. Um and I listened to it and it was so wrong. <laughs> How did they pr- try to pronounce it? Uh, it was like a pronunciation I've never even heard before. Usually people say uh, wheel or whale. And this was like woo hill. Hmm. Yeah. So I was going to guess wooly, but then I was like, no. <laughs> so it was interesting. No, it's one of the few names that came through Ellis Island and, and got more confusing. So, <laughs> but you got it. Excellent. <clears throat> So for the listeners out there, uh, Candace Wheelie holds an MA in literature from the University of Minnesota, as well as an MFA in poetry from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Her studies in writing concern the relationship between trauma, memory, and the occult. She has authored three collections of poetry and the acclaimed novel Monarch, which came out in 2022. Now, speaking personally, I read Monarch recently. And I was just blown away. Shout out to my buddy Nucky for recommending it. Uh, I noticed when it came out, but I didn't pick it. I didn't, you know, go for it until Nucky was like, no, you should check it out. Nucky mentioned it in my show's Discord. And so I reread the novel again for the purposes of this interview. And I have to say, like, it works on so many levels. Like, it's poignant. It's controversial. It's a great work of art. I feel like if I read this when I was much younger, I would have probably appreciated it on like purely literary merits and the conspiracy theory and much of the subject matter would have gone right over my head. But I will say for my listeners out there, given the nature of this show, right, the novel is pilled as hell, right? It is soaking in paranoia. It pulls no punches in terms of the subject matter. Further, it draws together various threads of conspiracy, which I don't think would occur to most people to connect without firsthand knowledge or in-depth research or inspired literary talent. Now, there's more than enough of uh, everything that Program to Chill fans are interested in in the novel Monarch to have a good time reading it. It's not often you get something that succeeds on like the literary level and the... Uh, you know, for lack of a better term, conspiracy theory level. And my listeners know I love to zero in on uh, works of art, which hit both of those. So there's also, interestingly, a lot of like queer and gendered themes throughout. There's even a nice lesbian romance subplot. So it's not all just like conspiracy theory fodder. And for these reasons and so many more, I very much recommend the novel. Now, how are you doing today, Candace? I'm doing well. Thanks for that introduction. Definitely. I have actually, I've never interviewed an author of fiction before, right? And would it be gauche to ask for your literary influences with regards to Monarch specifically? No, I mean, I think that this is the kind of book where that is the question. Um, Mm -hmm. It's funny. 
I read your, I read your questions and then I um, saw my dad a few days later and for, he was talking about the book for some reason and he referred to it as almost literary. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah, which uh, it's a compliment from him. But um, when I was at the LA Times Book Festival about a year ago and, you know, everyone, there's a, there's a million people there, a million other mm-hmm. authors all asking like, what's, what's your genre? What's your book about? And I just kept saying uh, women's literary fiction. And then I'd start mm-hmm. describing it and they'd be like, doesn't really sound like literary fiction. So I think it is very difficult um, to talk about what my literary influences are for this book. Um, The only one I can really, really point to is um, Otessa Moshfei and her Mm. novel, Eileen, which is um, a book I read right, right before I started writing Monarch. And if you know Eileen, um, there's no real direct connection between Monarch and Eileen, except that they're both books about um, disaffected young women. But I was so struck by uh, that book's approach to voice that when I first started reading it, it's one of the only times I've ever started reading something and was just compelled to read it out loud. So mm. it sounded so much like a, like a film noir voiceover or something to me. And I think in the back of my mind, that really made me want to write a novel that would be equally voicey and sort of driven by atmosphere in that way. But by the same turn on atmosphere, I think Monarch is a lot more influenced by film, especially like campy B films. Mm. And um, I've always been really, really interested in the way um, a noir or really low budget film from the 50s and 60s uh, was able to talk about issues that other films weren't talking about that by virtue of the fact that it didn't have all this studio funding, right? And that it wasn't as managed, uh, they weren't as managed or controlled or um, overseen by production heads. So filmmakers like you know, probably the most famous example would be like Orson Welles and A Touch of Evil, that they're mm-hmm. able to make these wild films um, because nobody's really looking at them that ostensibly seem like they're about this like very genre, plot driven, campy topic, but in actuality are about these much, much deeper themes about alienation or um, uh, whatever they're thinking about. So I think that's where I was coming from in terms of my in or what my influences were with Monarch. That's very interesting. Yeah. Cause now that you say it, I can like, I think of like sunset Boulevard or something with like the mm-hmm. opening. Cause like in the novel, it is very, I'm saying for the listeners, it is like the voice of the main character is like very much comes across that way. I can definitely see that now that you pointed out. And yeah, there is something with that, like, film noir how it's like economical and how they tell the story but then it is also a mechanism for slipping in all these interesting things that's very interesting yeah yeah in the sense that sometimes the story is kind of beside the point it's more Mm -hmm. of like a tagline to get people in the theater interesting okay so along the same lines then i gotta ask so what were your influences in terms of understanding monarch and uh 
MK Ultra related topics going into this novel? Yeah, well, I'm afraid this is my answer to this is actually always a little bit disappointing for um, uh, for people who are really coming at the novel from the conspiracy theory perspective. Um, so my um, understanding of Monarch and MK Ultra was really pretty limited. I mean, I think I'd always been really attracted to those topics and. Um, you know, I grew up in the 90s and was obsessed with the X-Files and mm-hmm. um, there, you know, just sort of the general vibe, especially in the late 90s that we were just in the midst of um, of secret happenings, you know, like uh, there was like a Nostradamus special every single weekend, it seemed like for all of 99 and um, the... Yeah, yeah. So things like that were just on my mind in general. But I had have never been a person who like seriously investigated or read a lot about conspiracy theories, either academically or just in online discussion boards, right? So um, I heard I was listening to a podcast. Um, it was actually like one of maybe the first episode of the My Favorite Murder podcast um, mm. a long time ago, and one of the hosts covered the murder of John Benet Ramsey, and she just very briefly mentioned uh, this conspiracy theory. And I don't even think she called it Monarch, but um, I was in the I I think written the first chapter of the book. So I actually started the book before I even knew it was going to be about um, Project Monarch in any way. And the ideas, and I already knew the book was about a beauty pageant contestant. And then I heard this theory that um, Patsy Ramsey had been a monarch agent who was accidentally deployed, which resulted in the murder of JonBenet Ramsey, who was also mm-hmm. in um, training to be a monarch agent later on. So from there, like back to that um, film noir plot line, that just, that became the plot line of a novel that I knew was going to be about all of these other themes. So um, it wrote itself a little bit in that sense, but I did do some, um, some research from there. You know, of course I read some Kathy O'Brien um, and looked at looked at her website. I um, I read Poisoner in Chief by the journalist uh, Stephen Kinzer. That's probably my main touch point for actual um, goings on of the CIA. Um, but other than that, I you know I've actually learned so much about Project Monarch since writing the book from interviews mm-hmm. like this one. Interesting. Yeah, because like, I went into this and I was thinking, I mean, everyone comes with different preconceived notions. I'm sure I came with unique ones being from more of the conspiracy theory realm. But I went in thinking that this would be like a fictional version of like Kathy O'Brien or something. But like, when I got into it, I was surprised to see that it really was not that, you know? Mm hmm. I thought there would be more of that like monarch lore for lack of a better term. But the thing is, I think that's good that it isn't a ton of that because like the novel transcends that in a certain way, because like, I don't, 
think that much necessarily of some of the monarch literature, not to, uh huh, yeah, you know, talk down to you or the listener, but like it's it some of some of that stuff strikes me as uh maybe as fictional as your novel, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a deeply metaphorical quality to, mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, I'm thinking of Kathy O'Brien's thing about the holograms. Um, I think, who is, does she say that like Reagan or someone would come to her in holograms, hologram mm -hmm. form and tell her what to do. And I mean, that is, that's pretty fascinating. It definitely feels like there is a, um, a, a very fictive element to that and it's really interesting to think through like i i believe kathy o'brien believes everything that she's saying but it's also interesting to think of that mm -hmm. as literature to think of like what is that what does that symbolize or say about the themes in this story to communicate through the hologram or to be in two places at once um or what does it say about like her mental state to believe that these um, that these higher ups have specifically targeted her, like how what kind of specific paranoia is that? So, yeah, I absolutely get what you mean about um, about a lot of the supposedly true monarch stuff being very fictive novel. Novel is a great mm -hmm. word, um, but. Um, I'm also glad that I didn't know about a lot of that when I was writing this, because there certainly mm -hmm. would have been a temptation to try to work it in. And I really think part of what works about the first half of the novel is that Jessica doesn't know anything about Monarch. And so I don't really need to know anything about it as the author to some extent. So there are elements where I think it really allowed me to write the first half of the novel so that Jessica was having experiences that were pretty universal before, like, for example, I, there's a part where she is, um, oh, she has all of these bruises and all of this pain. And mm -hmm. you'll find out later on that it's caused by these missions that she's unwittingly going on. But in the context of the book, her mother explains it away as um, growing pains. And she sort of reflects on how she knows other girls at her high school who, you know, have bruises from softball or um, have lots of um, uh, lots of pain from growing in general. So I think it sort of creates this suspension of disbelief or, you know, also allows the reader to experience how strange it was to be a teenager. And then it's more impactful when you realize something really strange is going on. So yeah. I don't know, in that sense, it was like a, it was sort of a hack for me to not know as much about it. No, I think that's really smart. Cause like, I was going to say like doing my show where I essentially study parapolitics, a lot of times people approach me like my listeners, right. And mm -hmm. not so much about monarch stuff, but like just about like the CIA in general, you know, various intelligence agencies and they will approach me and tell stories about something that their, you know, uncle or their grandfather or, you know, father did. And they will have some of the pieces and I might have one or two. And they are trying to make sense of their lives and they don't have all the pieces yet. And mm -hmm. it's not to say that I can put it all together for them either. But like, 
being in that headspace where you don't understand what's going on and you slowly realize that something really weird is happening or like just yeah. you're in a really abnormal situation is just it really works in terms of like novel I would say yeah yeah I think getting a reader to experience the revelation mm. as opposed to just summarizing the revelation is is the move right or wrong I'll be with you opens with a quote from Carolyn Forche, the poet. The uh, opening quote says, one can live without having survived. And I was actually surprised when I read that because I was recently reading some of her stuff relating to her work in El Salvador. And I mean, I was surprised in the sense that like, I was like, wait, where did I read that name before? Because I wasn't familiar with her poetic work, I'm afraid. But for my listeners out there who also aren't familiar, how would you describe Forche and her work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a it's been a while since I read any Forche. She's a poet who I came across in um, during my MFA. She tends to write really long, um, intricate, image-heavy poems that are also um, often have uh, political. Um, Mm. message uh, or argument and um, might be might be an okay way to 
describe that. So she is, um, I mean, my, the truth is my experience with Forche is much more related to just the poetics of her poetry. Um, and that line that ended up becoming the epigraph to the book was the very last thing that went into the book. So, you know, I'd worked on it for a long time, gone hmm. through the process with my agent and then my editor. Um, and um, not to get too far afield, but there was a there was a long period of time where this book was named after a child who had been um, murdered near my hometown. And having that name as like the title of the book, the, you know, the document name in my computer really gave me a lot of determination, I guess, or energy to keep working on, keep working on this book. So I got to the point where I was submitting it and I realized that it just felt like it felt wrong to still have it be named after her. Hmm. And it didn't really make sense anymore. And I also, um, I mean, part of this book is about um, protecting the privacy of um, children and young women who are exploited regularly by just habits of our culture. So I didn't feel like I could have that be the title of the book anymore. Um, so at some point I thought, well, I'll, I'll dedicate the book to her. And then that felt wrong too. I just didn't even want to draw. I, I wouldn't even say her name now. So I, um, didn't want to draw attention to this child or it, it felt, ex, uh, exploitative. So this Forche quote came to me from, um, a decade before in my MFA. And it felt like that was a way to, um, honor the, inspiration for the book um and this case that motivated me to want to write the book without directly saying saying the child's name so i guess in that sense i also think of forche um as a poet who really thinks about witnessing others um and making space for the voices of others while still being respectful um, and cognizant of others' emotional realities and identities. And I think I think maybe that's why that train of thought brought me back to this quote that I hadn't thought of in a long, long time. Yeah, no, I really like that because like, you know, Forche is essentially, she's like a, she's a poet, but she's politically engaged and has that like human rights oriented like mindset. And I did feel like there was that element in Monarch where I could feel, I mean, not to say, I don't know. I've never talked to an author before. So like, I, like it felt like you had a similar sort of approach. So I can definitely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as I was writing Monarch, so as I've mentioned at this point, I was a poet before I started writing this. And when I started writing it, I thought it was going to be a poem, um, which is why the there's an introductory passage that's sort of broken from the rest of the book. It's told from a totally different perspective than uh, the first person narrative that Jessica Clink, the main character, tells the story from. So the reason for that, or not the reason, but the origin of that is that I thought that I was going to write a prose poem. Um, and then, and I, this was not too long after Trump had come into the White House. And um, 
the world was just rapidly, rapidly changing. And I started to realize that I wanted to speak politically um, much more directly than I had been in poetry, mm. which is not to say poets can't. Obviously, Forche does. Many, many, many great American poets do um, and great poets around the world. But I couldn't. I didn't know quite how to do that. It was never the kind of poet that I've been. Um, so it just became much more natural for me to start writing fiction. So I wrote Monarch and I've never stopped writing fiction then. And part of that is just because I want to articulate in a much more direct way um, some of the ideas that you just mentioned. So as I was writing Monarch, um, sort of the trail of atrocity just uh, began that we've now come to understand as uh, being an American. But there was the Trump outrage and then there was... Um, the um, Brett Kavanaugh sworn into uh, mm. the Supreme Court. And I remember I was leaving my house to go to the library and work on Monarch. Uh, I was about a third of the way in and I just stopped because um, Christine Blasey Ford had started testifying and, you know, just like froze the day for two hours. And that went right into the book. Um, and then I feel like, Maybe right after that, Me Too happened. Maybe Me Too happened before. Mm -hmm. And then it was just like every morning there was um, testimony from gymnasts who were testifying against Larry Nasser. Uh, there was just so much. And there were so many women who were giving testimony, right? Um, and it really went right into Monarch. And honestly, I doubt I would have finished Monarch if I hadn't just continually been so, um, outraged by what was happening. Mm. And so felt that the, that one of the, res my personal responses was to put, uh, some of the messages in Monarch that are there into the book. That makes a lot of sense. Do you feel that, uh, the act of writing it was cathartic? Yeah. I I guess it must have been. <laughs> um, I certainly didn't write it for that reason. And while there are a lot of hmm. parts of Monarch that are very much just my life, oddly, um, those are not really the cathartic parts of Monarch. So I have I've absolutely much more felt the catharsis of Monarch from reader reactions. Mm. Um, when I get, you know, when I get a direct message from someone who read it and had, had a response to it. And um, yeah. Yeah. So I think the catharsis hasn't really come for me until I've been able to see that it that the book actually has helped people understand something about themselves or culture or feel healed in some way yeah and understanding that i'm sure those messages are certainly private do you get the sense that like survivors of certain types of these you know traumas do you get the impression that uh, works of art not just monarch but monarch and related art is helpful in dealing with that trauma? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, that's part of the plot of the book, right? Is that um, mm -hmm. 
Jessica is really only after she realizes what's happened and that none of her life has really been her own, the way that she um, puts herself back together in so far as she does um, is that she develops um, her skills as a photographer and um, spoiler warning, but we end the book with um, her as a working artist who's doing these sort of um, surreal shows of photography and witness. Um, so for me, I couldn't think of another way for Jessica to move forward at all. It was like, I'm writing the book and I'm trying to figure out what happens other than that Jessica kills herself after, or is committed or something after, um, what she goes through. And all that really presented itself to me was this idea that she engages in a self-invention that I think, mm. I don't want to say self-invention is only possible through art, but it's the only way that I know it to be possible. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it does seem to be the case for a lot of people. That makes a lot of sense. So there's this passage, which Candace frequently reads at, you know, like live events and so forth. And it's the more or less the beginning of the novel. And I found it to be very, very effective. And so I asked if uh, Candace would like to read that for us. Um, yeah, so this this was originally a poem that was much longer, and this is the um, version that was left after dozens of rewrites. There is no way to tell the story of a great violence. To tell this story, the narrator became a child beauty queen. She enrolled in evening elocution courses. She trained herself to paint a second face atop her own face. Masks are subtext read aloud, the private wish made public. She performed the talent of the baton twirler, the musician, the tap dancer, the actress, and this proved that the truest talent is mine. You know, it was the parrot, not the child, who first suggested the difference between the human and the animal is ability to self-reflect, to see oneself in a mirror and say, that is myself. Our narrator developed late, she will tell you this story soon, after she explains how she learned the language of the pageant. At the age of 19, she learned to answer the questions of adults. Of course, she was already an adult, but she had not yet been asked any questions. She had not yet become interested in anything enough to ask a question. She learned that a story is only the shape of a story. If anything about the story could act as a mirror, there was little left for her to do. That is, I suppose, what allows this to be a story about the dead. Our narrator is now tapping. She is about to tell us. I feel like I should clap right now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's wonderful. I think the listeners uh, hopefully will get a taste of the prose because I do say like, I think it's great. I think it's very wonderful. So, um, I'll I'll say it gets funnier <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> it is a quite funny novel too. I think that for sure. I probably undersold that. There were definitely times when I was laughing. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah. So I'm not going to go through the plot of the novel. I know when I do other literary episodes, I frequently do, but that doesn't make sense to do in this case, right? 
my listeners, you should just read the book. But in broad strokes, generally speaking, right, the novel is told from the perspective of a a woman. I mean, I guess at first she's a child, but then a woman named Jessica Greenglass Clink. She thinks about her childhood, her adolescence, and her early adult life in the 90s and early aughts. Like you said, she was a child beauty pageant competitor. And like you said, there are many parallels to the Jean Benet Ramsey case, but it does certainly go in different directions, I guess. And it really builds out some of the darker and more paranoid fears that some of my buddies, like my fellow researcher George of CavDev, has explored regarding the Jean Benet Ramsey case. Now, I wanted to ask you. To what extent do you think child beauty pageants prepared Jessica, the character, for her programming? And, I guess a dual question, where did you get the idea to look at beauty pageants as a parallel or maybe entry point for monarch programming? Yeah, well, um, the entry point came from that Jean Benet conspiracy theory entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just quickly, as I, as I said earlier, it felt like the novel wrote itself from there to some degree. It just became such a perfect analog, um, for cultural programming, um, and as just a reality, um, in a capitalist society, um, and, CIA mind control. So, so I, I really quickly, I also was really interested in cults um, and still am, but I really quickly saw the parallels between cult programming and beauty pageants. So I think one of the things that first jumped out at me was um, the deprivation uh, that competitors in beauty pageants and as and people in cults go through um Mm -hmm. and the way that um deprivation from sleep or food or um the outside world really creates a condition in which one becomes really manipulable um and obedient so i was you know able to do some research on child beauty pageants and just really think about like these very unnatural conditions that children are put in where they have to hold still for long periods of time and um, perform their emotions in a way that is not um, usually possible for a child unless they've been really um, carefully conditioned to control those emotions. And I think a lot of the time that conditioning comes from extreme discipline uh from their families and from their coaches Mm -hmm. literally behavioral modification right i mean whether or not you want to like tack on the mk ultra stuff it literally is behavioral modification yeah yeah so i mean there's also this emphasis on their appearance on being charming and obedient of being physically um superior uh both in terms of appearance and being able to just have this enormous stamina of being on stage for a long period of time and it's not comfortable you know it to wear heels or Mm -hmm. um sewn into a dress that uh inhibits your breathing it's like a very low-key form of torture that goes on for hours and hours under bright lights 
So yeah, all of those things just had such a direct connection to the way in which, um, to the way in which behavioral modification takes place. And it made me think of what I did know from movies like uh, Le Jeté, uh the Chris Marker movie about oh, like how um, solitary confinement um, or sensory deprivation, sorry, that's mm. what I was looking for, um, sensory deprivation and repeated exposure to um, certain images and messages can uh, strategically uh, modify behavior. Yeah, I know it's not really the same as child beauty pageants, but my listeners already know this, but I don't I'm assuming you don't know that I actually was a Mormon missionary. And like as I was reading passages specifically about the child beauty pageant, some of it reminded me a little bit of being a missionary. Wow, how so? So much of your behavior is so circumscribed, all your eating, your the clothes you wear, like all the everything you do is basically prescribed in like in these narrow categories like it's not the same for sure but like it just put me back almost in that mindset and it was very interesting to reflect on that yeah it's not the same but it's also like <laughs> why why is this such a pervading technique in our culture why do we even mm -hmm. exist in a culture that will allow this kind of um extreme cultural conditions to exist um and you know in the case of pageants then put them on screen and treat them as sort of like the the echelon of feminine perfection right so there's there's absolutely like you you have to ask who's benefiting from this and i'm sure this is absolutely something that your listeners think about um all mm -hmm. the time but um I don't know. I when I was in the process of writing this book, uh, an energy worker um, who did, you know, like Reiki and soul retrieval and stuff said to me, the body must really be worth something if so many people want to control it. And so, yeah, part part of Monarch came from that statement. But I, I just whenever I notice that there's an actual organization or um a pervading part of culture that's trying to so aggressively trying to modify behavior. My first question is why, who's getting what from this? My little girl was playing with her friend from down the street she took her by the hand and said there's someone you should meet and then they went into her room to play another Picked up all her dollies and called them all by name. I listened as she said their names. Here's Betty Sue and Kay, Jack and Jill, 
It's interesting, right? Because, like, on the face of it, the way both child and even adult beauty pageants work, they seem so doll-like that, like, monarch brainwashing stuff almost just seems to be, like, the go-to way of thinking about it. But then, like, how do I phrase this? Like, there are also, like, literal connections to some of these, like, subterranean things in terms of, like, whether you say, like, pedophile networks with, like... Mm -hmm child beauty pageants or yeah yeah a certain degree of actual espionage right with the adult ones totally yeah no when i went through that was a that was another thing that i researched a little bit was um red sparrows and Mm. that i think we know or there's more written about the russian use of um sex agents to Oh, get information or sometimes kill people. But um, yeah, I I didn't mention this on my list of all the other things were, that were happening in the world when I was writing Monarch, but of course the Jeffrey Epstein stuff that happened mm-hmm. then. And that felt absolutely wild. Like I... <laughs> Like the, I remember the day that happened feeling like I had like manifested something um, that I was writing this book that took the premise that there were rings connected to the government and secret societies of um, men who were um, engaged in child prostitution where in which they were getting the um the children from beauty pageants and then this thing with epstein happens and he's literally scouting models um through Mm -hmm. agencies right it's like what i thought was the wildest darkest element of the story was just a thing that was happening and in a sense when you look back on the history of um the modeling industry um or you know other circles Epstein was involved in. This is the kind of thing that's only more recently become like really, really scandalous. 
Whereas at one point in history, it wasn't really that unusual to hire um, to hire a sex worker from from a theater, say, like mm-hmm. three years ago. So I don't know. It's uh, yeah. To to your point, that some of the wildest parts of this are just just in the real world. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And to that end, I guess uh, with I thought about how to ask this question. So many like so. Basically, I'll just toss it out there. Like, mm-hmm. how do you view your work as in conversation with monarch and you know all the related stuff maybe not monarch specifically given the i like how you said the fictive elements perhaps but just the broader uh how do you view your work as in conversation with these theories versus simply as like a literary device for exploring alienation or what have you yeah a hundred percent a literary device um when I was conceptualizing Monarch, I was working on my PhD in creative writing, but as a part of that, um, my dissertation work was on trauma studies. And um, so I was thinking a lot about how memory and trauma work, and you know, more specifically, how do um, how do the memory functions of people who have been traumatized work? And mm. I think we we all at this point in culture, when I wrote Monarch, we didn't have as much conversation about um, triggers. The word trauma wasn't used like a thousand times a day. In fact, when I did my defense of my dissertation, it like was very foreign to my <laughs> to my committee. Um, mm. But at the time, it felt really um, novel, I guess. And um so like the basic literary theory interpretation um, or summary of how the traumatic memory structure works is that there is an event A that occurs that uh, one does not have the language um, or knowledge to metabolize or integrate into one's psyche or sense of self. So like Freud's example is, you walk in on your parents having sex. You don't know what they're doing. It seems like maybe your father is attacking your mother. Um, you have no idea how to explain it to yourself. Nobody tells you. Um, you leave, you, in Freud's model, you don't talk about it, but you're left with like this sense of disease that you can't explain to yourself. And it manifests in the way that we now think of as PTSD. And then there's a point B um, in which you perhaps learn the language or receive the context to understand that initial traumatic moment. And Mm -hmm. theoretically, once you get that context, you are able to integrate that traumatic moment and recover. Um, So like uh, through the process of talk therapy for is, you know, the prevailing popular treatment for, um, for that kind of trauma. But so I was thinking of that. And then the monarch theory uh, presented itself in ways that I've already detailed. And this idea that there could be a person who's having this point A, this moment of trauma, who goes into the latency period and literally can't integrate what's happened to them because they don't know that it happened. But as Jessica does, is having all of these things happen in her life, these sleepwalking episodes, 
um, the bruises, the paranoia, the strange interactions with almost everyone in her life um, as just like this waking uh, extreme simulation of PTSD. Um, and then she, of course, has the moment B where she suddenly realizes she was an agent in Project Monarch. Um, and from there, she tries to integrate uh, her real, quote unquote, real personality um, into herself. So I hope that that explanation really, really proves how much I thought of Monarch only as a literary device. Mm, that makes sense. Now, it's up to you how you want to respond. What do you think of it in terms of a uh, theory that exists in the real world? Like, do I think that there are really monarch agents out there? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I I don't think that monarch, as it has been detailed... Um, by by the women who say that they were monarch agents exists. However, I do believe that there are different iterations of being uh, so culturally conditioned or directly conditioned um, or having behaviors modified by as you mentioned, by spiritual institutions or educational institutions mm -hmm. um, or your job, right? Uh, that can cause people to have varying degrees of um, behaviors that deploy the will of institutions um, in a way that is not really that person's choice if that makes sense and i'm specifically thinking right now of this cia experiment that was named it was called project naomi it was mm. during you know the do you know about this i do but I, my listeners might not remember the specifics so go ahead yeah yeah it's just the one where they um they and you can probably explain this better than i can actually but um modified the behavior of the secretaries in the office. I don't remember if they gave the secretaries LSD or not, um, but to make them be more flirtatious. And Naomi was the head secretary, so it was named after her. But I do think that there are probably lots of um, instances like that. And, and also right now, just sort of off the cuff, I'm thinking of the military and um people who put themselves into for you know for various reasons who put themselves into actual training that's physical mental emotional mm -hmm. um and come out of it quite actually deploying the will of the state right so i think in terms of like the broader theme behind monarch or the broader theory i think it happens all the time i don't really think that there's any project monarch yeah, I think that's well said. That more or less does align with what my current understanding. Not that that's, you know, any big thing, but no, I definitely hear you and uh, I agree. I wanted to ask you about fairy tales as a psychological programming device, because in the novel, fairy tales come up a number of times. And I really, really liked 
the exploration of this basically that they were like used by the patriarchy do you like could you expound on that please yeah yeah um so i i came across um came across this article um might have been a sabrina or in mark article she writes the fairy tale column for the paris review um but it basically explained that fairy tales original function in germany at least from the grim brothers um mm. was to function as propaganda for the state so um if you my favorite my favorite one to think about is um hansel and gretel and learning that hansel and gretel actually came from famine times in germany um and that you know this is it's not so much like a cautionary story for children uh to warn them against going into the forest uh, as it is a story about how parents were really doing, <laughs> were really doing this. Um, and it was more of a story Jeez. to warn, to warn uh, parents against abandoning their children that they couldn't feed in the woods. And it was also a story to sort of hint towards the idea of cannibalism that was happening again amongst some people during the famine. Um, so I like I, I can't remember the exact connection in that story of how that's state propaganda, except that it's like a way of saying we see what you're doing <laughs> and um and you know don't do it. Don't don't abandon your children. So that's like an unbelievably simplified version of that. But I think it is really interesting to think about fairy tales, um, both as psychological programming devices by the patriarchy that, you know, it's pretty obvious what they're instructing us to do is have really heteronormative relationships in which both parties sort of abandon their sense of self in this kind of magical way in order to um, be completed by the marriage contract, which is, of course, like a state, um, a state mandated contract and it benefits benefits the state and the patriarchy to have have women at the time enter into enter into this contract where um, historically they've um, lost some rights and gained some other rights that'll be more mandated by the patriarchy. But on the other hand, um, I've had it was just really interesting to me to think about if fairy tales have that much power, and I think they do. I think I've really seen them have a tremendous amount of power, especially on construction of gender and women, at least of my ages, uh, approach to romantic relationships. Um, so if, if they have that much power and they begin having that sway, like as soon as you can articulate thoughts when you're like two years old, um, then what happens if fairy tales have a different message? So I wanted to write these fairy tales or this idea that there's a book of fairy tales in Jessica's house that her mother smuggled over from Norway. And there are these radical subversive fairy tales um, in which like the power of language as a legal function is explained and, um, and women are 
powerful and the family unit is uh, regarded not so much as something to be protected and upheld at all costs, but as something um, to be, um, how do I put this, critiqued. <laughs> to, to be mm -hmm. critiqued in terms of what its value systems actually are. So this was sort of a sideways way for me to start presenting um, these messages that Jessica will have embedded that will later sort of bloom into who she will become after she starts to develop her own personality. No, that's so interesting because, I mean, as you know, I'm sure like in monarch lore, quote unquote, like, Disney movies in particular are like very ubiquitous, right? And the, most Disney movies are essentially fairy tales. I do not know that. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, it's interesting because I, I, I think a lot of my listeners might not know this as well. So basically in Monarch lore, there's typically like a lot of using Disney films to program victims, I guess. And part of it, you know, sometimes gets very granular in terms of like you sit a kid down, strap them down to make them watch Fantasia while they're on acid. And then you like break their mind or something like horrible like that. But like in general, also, it's just a lot of like having a lot of Disney paraphernalia and lots of Disney media and like whether or not anyone has ever actually, you know, dosed a kid on acid and tried to break their mind while watching Fantasia separate from that you're right like there is that like grandiose like Disney like looms so large in the culture and for sure it is generally you know it's funny because so much of this uh monarch lore is like right wing coded but like Disney yeah. is fundamentally like aligned with the interests of the state is what I, I guess I would say. Right. So like, mm -hmm. it is funny to, you know, cause essentially it is teaching kids like you're a princess, you're Prince Charming. And you know, you want to have this normal, like hetero relationship, but yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to look at the way that Disney movies have evolved and mm -hmm. they've done so much in terms of um, not presenting the heteronormative messaging that they used to. And I think they haven't had an actual princess in a movie for a few years now. Um, and, you know, they're, some, some of what they do is pretty interesting. But at the same time to look at, so what values are they? Uh, presenting now and it does tend to be like a lot of values about being loyal to the family at all costs um, and different ways that we wouldn't necessarily think of as conforming but in the end I think are um, being and it's always presented differently like like the hero in the Disney movie is um, someone who like can't fit in and that's the problem and then the arc is that they that they learn it's okay not to fit in, but at the same time they fit in in the end. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think what you point to is that just paying attention to anything that's like, we have so few monoculture anymore, but Disney's one, Disney's one of the monocultures that persists mm -hmm. paying attention to like what function it's serving in the culture is uh, uh, really 
illuminating. Yeah, absolutely. So is the monarch theory with Disney that um, after that conditioning is happening, like the organic way in which the child and then later adult will encounter Disney in the world will reinforce the messaging? I think so, or at least they become very attached to Disney things. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of it is partially like a, like a stunted maturity, so partially they're just still maybe the maturity level of like a child or a young adult, but like Interesting. some really of it, that. yeah, is like coded to be like, oh, they are almost like Manchurian candidate fixated on Disney. Mm -hmm. Puts a different spin on Disney adults and those people who want to get married at Disney. It really does. Cause like <laughs> Mormons in particular love Disney and it never really made sense to me, but yeah. Yeah. Part that destroyed my family. That must have started with my uncle Frank. I'm brother. I'm Frank. It was him and my father's wife.
switching gears a little bit. Uh, so Jessica, her father is a professor, right? And he's the professor of boredom studies. Mm -hmm. And through the novel, it is revealed essentially that he is also doing like behavioral modification experiments, kind of like funded through like a human ecology fund type of thing. But like mm -hmm. on the surface, he's like very concerned with like studying boredom and its mental effects. And I thought that was just very funny. Where did you get that? Or, you know, how did you get interested in boredom? Well, again, so I was doing my trauma studies and I think of trauma studies as a subset of memory studies. And so I was like, well, I don't want to, I don't want him to be a trauma studies professor. That's just too on the nose. Hmm. But this is definitely, I, I knew I was writing a novel that was going to be about affect to some sense and how like our uncontrolled affect gives us clues to who we are. So I was like, boredom is a really interesting affect. Um, and it really relates to like um, the disaffected 90s teen girl uh, trope mm. that we see in like Daria or Darlene Connor, Janine Garofalo, right? Um, so I, that all that was going on in my mind. And, um, you know, I, I did a little bit have, um, Don DeLillo's white noise that the main character in that is a Hitler studies professor. Yeah. And so I, I knew I, I was kind of intentionally, I thought I'd sort of tip my hand to DeLillo more throughout the book, but it kind of ended with the boredom studies thing. Um, but I did, when I first started writing, I think I was trying to make some some connection between postmodernism and what kind of to go back to the idea of like what is the genre of monarch what kind of book is this um i thought that i it would be more postmodern and then it sort of became its own thing but so yeah that was partially there um but yeah i don't know and then boredom studies just led to all these interesting things i think that's so fascinating because i i'm saying to the listeners right i had this question about david foster wallace uh because in his last novel the pale king it's essentially about accountants and ipso facto so much of the novel is about boredom mm -hmm. and specifically he even does go a little bit into like harnessing boredom like weaponizing it even and mm -hmm. just like in, it's so interesting that monarch also kind of goes in that route a little bit right yeah yeah i mean i think potentially bored people are pliable people or a bored population mm. is pliable um and i i mean my I, I guess the other place i was coming from with boredom is um this giorgio agamben book he's a, an italian philosopher called the open mm. man and animal and he has this chapter um you know, there are a lot, there are a few chapters on boredom in there, but um, there's one called Profound Boredom that starts with a epigraph um, from Giacomo Leopardi um, that boredom is the desire for happiness left in its pure state. So I think I was uh, thinking about ways in which like boredom can be cultivated in order to create 
this um, like profound desire, right? And then to have a state institution come in and fill that desire in some way really gives a lot of power to the institution, right? Mm, that makes sense. So, yeah, I don't know how much that connects with what, you know, I'm familiar with David Foster Wallace, but not not that last book, actually. So I don't know how much that's what he's saying. But uh, from what I have read of David Foster Wallace, I definitely think there's a lot of connection in terms of like how he regards consciousness and mm. how we can direct our attention um, in mindful ways and be more uh you know have more agency purely through the idea of like knowing who we are yeah that makes a lot of sense so much of that like disaffection and like like almost negative emotional space possibly like a precursor to being modified like having your behavior modified by you know maybe like these state or institution actors yeah i really like the term negative emotional space it makes me think of this other line from from this book where he's talking about a heidegger's concept of um design which is just like uh coming into being basically like coming into consciousness mm -hmm. um he says design is simply an animal that has learned to become bored it is awakened from its own captivation to its own captivation which is very, very monarch, right? Like this idea that um, Jessica has been captive the whole time, but she's not really, uh, it's when she becomes aware of the captivation that things start to happen. So this idea that once we can become conscious of that negative emotional space, that there's like a part of our mm. uh, interiority that awakens. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, okay, I wanted to ask you, uh, maybe because in my listenership, my audience, and uh, just the people that I interact with in this like a conspiracy theory little world that we're in, mm -hmm. Iowa Writers, the, the Iowa Writing Center, right? Writers Workshop. Thank you very much. Much is made of connections between that institution and potentially like government uh, institutions. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I know that sometimes we might read a book like uh, Finks, which explores like how the CIA like funded the Paris review and, you know, mm -hmm. certain other artistic movements. And sometimes we go running and we go a little wild with the implications of what that means. So could I, ask you to confirm whether the CIA is <laughs> training authors. <laughs> uh, I'm joking, of course, but um, <laughs> what do you make well, of like just the idea that fiction itself can be potentially weaponized by the state? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I was talking about the Grimm brothers and propaganda, I mm. uh, sort of utterly confirmed <laughs> <laughs> confirm my belief that um, fiction can be weaponized. But um, the truth is that I feel like to go back to this idea of monoculture and common texts, um, 
I don't think that there are very many literary models that we all pay attention to anymore. Mm. Um, I, you know, I've taught creative writing for a few years and, you know, talk with undergrads every semester and every semester it gets harder to find any text that they all have watched. Um, they've almost never all read something. Um, mm. So I think it gets really difficult to argue anymore that, um, that, <laughs> that the CIA would have, uh, would consider it worthwhile to put money into literature in order to try to um, sway value systems simply because that's not how value systems are created anymore. Um, but I yeah. find, I find it pretty heartening that potentially there was one point in history when people were reading that much. And I understand the argument that, um, that we can, or that a writer could, not a writer, but a writing program um, could so pervasively implement a style of writing um, that uh, like values the interior life of an individual and like argues against um argues against some of the like atrocities that have happened like i think the argument of this book is that this is a phenomenon that arises post-world war one and that like literature could be healing in that way um by reinforcing the private life of the individual but uh i can also see how there's something extremely flattening about that, right? Because of course, all of the authors that we consider for uh, having done this are really white authors, men who are coming mm -hmm. from the same same exact perspective and reinforcing all of like the insidious cycles that got us into a position that we then needed to be healed from culturally, right? So yeah, I, I I do think that they're, I mean, I think we know, right, that the CIA's put lots of money into cultural institutions throughout time, including like, I wanna say The Clash. Weren't there some bands <laughs> that were really funded by the CIA? Oh yeah, there's, there's many for sure. <laughs> okay, so we, we know they cared they cared at some point. I don't know. Do you know when the last proven instance of the CIA paying for um, something humanities-based was? Oh, yeah. Uh, geez. The most recent? That's hard. But they're definitely, like, still doing it. Like, I know it... I think the maybe the most out in the open one was, like, a, a Cuban rap song that they were trying to get to like foster unrest in cuba you yeah know, okay. some of those like miami cuban expats um mm -hmm. wow but i mean <laughs> the band the scorpions uh yes that's what i was thinking of that yeah. was another one that was pretty pretty clear and i don't think anyone disputes it anymore that they were <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 and i apologize um to your listeners who surely know a lot more about this than I do. No, no, no worries. I wanted to ask, have you ever, and this also comes from one of my listeners, have you uh, ever heard of or read uh, Dave McGowan and any of his works? Uh, one of his books is about 
examining the serial killer phenomenon and noticing some of the overlap between intelligence agencies, organized crime, and behavioral modification experiments. His other book is about the Laurel Canyon rock scene and how a lot of there was a lot of uh, potential intelligence agency involvement in some of those bands like The Doors and so forth. Wow. No, I'm not familiar with McGowan at all, but I will become familiar after this interview. Yeah, for sure. He's definitely a fan favorite and a personal favorite of mine. Just wondering. That's so cool. No, no. I um, I mean, there's just so much, um, so many connections and things that... Mm-hmm continue to be proven um right now i'm working on the i I mean loosely working on a prequel to mark that traces Mm. some of the traces the origins of the mk ultra connection back to um to its roots in nazi germany so i i'm just like amazed by how how much this institution is just sort of threaded into so many parts of our culture and how the average person either doesn't know about it or doesn't think it's true, right? It's like a kind of mass delusion on its own to feel like the CIA is, like that all of these stories about the CIA are crazy fiction. Yeah, actually, recently, I was talking with a buddy of mine, and we were basically discussing how, like, it's not the same thing. I'm not saying it is. But like, if you look at like, just the subterranean history, and like, if you learn it, you start to like, see it in all these other places. And it's, it like pops up and in your everyday life. And then like, it almost becomes like a lens to see the world is kind of like, when you start to really become cognizant of like, you know, a good feminist framework or, you know, a class-based one or take your pick. Right. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've gone through the looking glass so many times over the last decade in terms mm-hmm. of, I, I mean, the me too movement uh, again, comes to mind that all of a sudden, you, you know, you get attuned to this one thing and then it's just staggering how much you see it happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things, there's just like some availability cascade going on there where you don't know how to look until you know what to look for and then you start to see it all the time. But also uh, a true phenomena of... Um, uh, like shared consensus, right? Um, that once one person starts to see something and like the actual the actual hashtag of me too um, being pointing to this shared consensus that like one mm-hmm. person seeing leads to other people seeing. Oh, I like the comparison to me too, because like, you know, whether, you know, there may or may not have been flaws and or missteps along the way, but like at the end of the day, now people really do have a new conceptual framework for understanding, like there's a really ubiquitous problem in society. Like mm-hmm. there is definitely like the, almost like a snowballing effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, working, 
working with 18 year olds as a college professor, they are so, I mean, I, I see it starkly how different they're attuned to the world and um, to power relationships. Um, and it really is heartening in the sense that like maybe maybe your grandfather <laughs> isn't isn't changed by me too um or by the capacity to look at the world through this new framework um but the people who will be in charge someday certainly are they're certainly aware of it it's a definitive palpable change hmm. now i have a uh, one or two more questions for you okay so from I believe this question is from Nucky, my listener. Uh, I'll just read it. So Nucky said, in some ways, the book presents our protagonist, Jessica, as a victim of the monarch experiments. Yet in other ways, she's a badass superhero, single-handedly taking the project down or at least seriously messing it up. That made for an interesting tension while reading. Now, do you imagine ways uh, that the victims of police and government agency abuse, you know, for lack of a better term, monarch type things could help stop the state's abuse? Or is it more like the victim defeating the system is a wish projection of fiction or like, you know, a conceit for the purposes of the novel? Or like, is there any hope for a Jessica out there doing this in real life, I guess? Yeah, I mean... I do feel like you have to be, you have to be in the system to dismantle the system or it helps. It helps mm -hmm. um, to understand how the system works. And, you know, there are lots of different specifically feminist theories um, about this, but I feel like, in order to disrupt an institution, um, it helps to be embedded within it. So I think the plot shape of Monarch, right, goes like quite physically deeper and deeper into institutions. So um, she, after, after sort of having her awakening, um, she pretty quickly goes to uh, an academy that's kind of reminiscent of like a secret underground Yale. And then she goes to the Vatican. And by that point, like the spatial metaphor of the book was really speaking to me as I was writing mm. it. And I was, I'm like literally looking at maps of, <laughs> of the underground of the Vatican. And oh, yeah, we're talking tunnels. Yeah, yeah, the tunnels that um, that lead throughout are fascinating. And so like by that point, I think that I'm kind of answering, pre-answering that question within the book, right? That she's quite actually going into the spaces in order to um, blow them up from the inside. And then like the book ends with her going into this secret mountain and going through all of these corridors and ultimately using her monarch credentials to gain access to this like highly secured area. So she's doing these things that she couldn't have done unless she was 
a victim of of this institution um yeah that's a great question it's really it's a huge question and hard to think through because i could also absolutely argue the other way yeah because uh, like i think nucky said if so if gravity's rainbow if you plot it out it takes the shape of a rocket's arc right mm -hmm. what kind of shape would you view monarch as taking well yeah it's interesting in that in that passage that I read earlier, um, it thinks of itself as a mirror. Um, but throughout, I was thinking a lot about spirals um, and the way in which, like, a person who's undergoing PTSD or trying to recover from a trauma that they haven't yet identified is sort of just walking around uh, in a circle to some to some extent. They're like doing the same thing again and again, and it's getting them nowhere. So at the beginning of chapter nine, I'll just quickly read um, uh, read this passage that really directly addresses that question, what the shape of monarch is. Um, so far, this story has been a study in circles, but by the end of this chapter, we will finally be ready to start talking about spirals. We will become more confident, more violent, safer than ever before. Our story will start to curl outward into time. I'm saying we will be anti-pearl. I'm saying we will stop being slugs and start being snails. I'm saying we will finally leave the 90s with a corkscrew in one hand. So I think the shape of monarch is like the shape of this person who's not treading their own path anymore, who's finally figured out, who's had the disruption and is now like in the spiral outward. And I like the shape of a spiral because it's not like direct forward momentum of, of the rocket, right? Um, it's like, uh, it's always forward, but sideways as well. So I didn't ever want to give the impression in Monarch that Jessica is like better or totally healed or okay, or mm. suggest that anyone is ever the same as they were before a tra traumatic instance, but that she is progressing. I like that a lot. So I wanted to run this past you. Okay. So Nucky sort of imagines that if Monarch has a moral, and I know that like it can it's a little bit out of out of date or whatever to talk about morals <laughs> to a novel, right? But yeah. you know, for lack of a better term, like Nucky imagines maybe the moral could be something like lesbian love will smash capitalism. Mm -hmm. And on my part, I sort of like was reading into the novel, like something like a compassion for people who have gone through these sorts of traumas and an acknowledgement, giving voice to what they went through and like, you know, basically giving like a full throated argument to like the two sides, which is like, you have to like, just get through it and like, you know, put your life together on your own terms. But on the other hand, sometimes certain people do need to be murdered not to advocate <laughs> that but just like giving a full-throated like endorsement to the idea that there should be retributive justice in some form or another yeah. uh yeah. what what would you say to I like and i'm sure other listeners would pick up other morals or so forth but like what do you feel like uh monarch could be saying in terms of mm -hmm. like morals or lessons i guess yeah I mean, that's a great question. And Nookie, is that your listener's name? 
That's right. Yeah, thank you for that and for the other questions. So for me, what got me through Monarch and the thing that I wanted to communicate was this idea that you can be highly conditioned um, by your culture, the institutions you belong to, uh, a religion, um, whatever. Like the conditioning could be all around you trying to insert values into you. So for me, um, the values that I was thinking about were these very 90s values um, about um, appearance and femininity and really thinking about how a lot of those values, um, which really propagated like eating disorders and real violence towards the self, um, mm -hmm. were uh, just how fucked up those were, right? Um, and thinking about why those existed and thinking about how they're like these market forces that are actively violent against the consumer. And and we're okay with that as a culture for lots of different lots of different reasons make us feel okay with that, including like history, media representations, the stories that we read, fairy tales, for example, um, are what your mother is like, right? So I was thinking about this and I was thinking about like, how do you ever know who you really are if everything you've ever been um, has been programmed into you in order to help somebody sell some lipstick or mm. uh, a diet shake um, or to get you to watch a certain show or, um, you know, to make sure essentially that you act within uh, consumer society's best interest, that you become you become a good consumer and um, a good a good citizen of the state, right? In that way, so it's the thing. The thing that came to me was that what tends to, in my experience and observation, eradicate um, or at least push back against that kind of programming is desire. Um, specifically in Monarch, it's romantic desire um, that. Mm of course, Jessica does not come from a culture or a time where being attracted to women would be at all acceptable. It's deeply secret and um, was still um, deeply shameful in the 90s in the Midwest. Yet it is this attraction and this desire that begins to deliver her back to herself and disrupt the programming and make her question it, make her question why the people around her want her to be in pageants or want her to um, be beautiful at all or obedient. Um, so for me, the moral of Monarch was to try to, was to point to the way in which desire can deliver us back to ourselves. In terms of, um, I, I, I do really want to address what you brought up because no one has actually ever asked me about this idea of um, like vengeance of the vigilante part mm. of this book. Um, and it was something that I was really careful about and conscious of as I was writing the book, because I don't believe in, in vigilante justice personally. Mm. Um, so I, I tried to be careful that at the couple points in Monarch, when Jessica is violent um, and, um, does commit a murder uh that these are like the 
the personality implant implants um, that are from from the deep state conditioning that are acting and they may be acting in accordance with some of her will but she's not entirely jessica yet um un, or an unprogrammed jessica so by the time we get to the final like big big um uh i don't even know how to refer to it because it's not a murder but when she takes out like the the main guy the way that 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 ends up is that she doesn't actually she chooses not to shoot him but instead she um freezes him uh with the idea that like you know speaking of disney that walt disney style he could be brought back to life and that he'll be frozen in this moment of his own trauma so and uh, and of course you know that is a kind of justice that she's doling out on her own so there is this vigilante quality to it that can't can't be denied um but i guess i just want to say that it is conflicted throughout and in the end when when she does end up freezing this character um it's not a murder she doesn't like take the the ultimate power in that moment so yeah uh, it's a, it's complicated no i really like that because like i really appreciate that like there is that element of vengeance essentially like or justice being done but i really like that you subvert it so it's not some pornographic act of violence that like you can almost like relish or something and like yeah. it reminds me of this movie you were never really here by lynn yeah. ramsey where basically i'm just saying for the listeners like a walking phoenix character you know he's the main character and he like essentially kills a bunch of pedophiles but like it's the film subverts it by never showing directly what he's doing mm -hmm. so it, you don't get that like ooh like like i said like kind of gross like vengeance thing it's like off screen as it were and like i really like that cuz it's not to say that if you took vengeance you would be on the same moral ground as the victimizer i don't think that's true but like in the media that is giving voice to these people essentially you're not like intentionally like trying to even go in that same territory i don't know does that make sense yeah yeah no thanks for saying that and i love that comparison to the joaquin phoenix film um yeah Absolutely. No, I, there's a point, uh, like very meta moment in Monarch when she says, would you like me to, I think it's, would you like me to describe a scene of great violence right now? And mm. then she says she's not going to. Um, and of course, there are many, many scenes of violence in Monarch, but like in that final moment that could might be gratifying, but the line between gratifying and gratuitous is kind of non-existent. So yeah, yeah I, I pull back from that for exactly the reasons that you just articulated really well is that like, if you simply create this cathartic moment for a reader to get to see violence because the reader has been violated, then what have you done? You know, you've just continued to cycle. Yeah, no, because, I mean, I'm just thinking of, like, my own work, you know, essentially, like, digging up the past, right? And sometimes, mm -hmm. like, I'm cognizant of the fact that, like, 
if I look up some horrible story and I research it, I'm essentially traumatizing myself. And then if I tell it in a certain way, I end up traumatizing the audience. And it's like, is it always useful to do that? I'm constantly asking myself these questions. I'm not always sure that it's useful or helpful to do so. But yeah, shining a light is still important. So like trying to like constantly interrogate that dynamic, that tension is like something I think a lot about. So I definitely like I really appreciated how you do how you did it in Monarch is what I would say. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, part of my orientation towards thinking about all of the things you just mentioned uh, is really informed by museum studies. Hmm kind of weirdly and the way in which museums archive or explain because you know every museum is just a story right um and there's choices that I think we're not always conscious of in terms of uh, how the museum is curated and framed that story about the past and museums are really powerful right they're their big experience with visual aids and and the story right so there's a lot of responsibility on the part of that institution to like think about are we simply traumatizing people what is our purpose here how mm. how worth it is it to um commemorate this um is it an act of witness and respect to do so um and also i think something we don't talk about at this current moment in our culture, but how do we make the decision to like, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be traumatized by reading about this um, or it's going to be upsetting, but then I can work through it. And ultimately something will come of it that is crucial and important, right? That, it, that it's a worthwhile thing mm -hmm. to engage with. And that's tricky. Um, Tri really tricky to personally gauge that so yeah no I think that's very well said I I definitely appreciate it and uh well first of all I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out to discuss your novel with us I know yeah, that thank you. this was a fun conversation thank you I know that my listeners are definitely many of them will read the book they should buy it in fact and I think I think that uh, they'll get a lot out of it. I, I know I did. And I definitely just uh, want to thank you for having such a wonderful conversation with me. Yeah, thank you so much.
Does your soul cast about like an old paper bag? Past empty lots and early grass. 